Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to continue our long and drawn-out discussion on the endocrine system. If you're still here with us today, that means we didn't bore you too much with our last discussion, so thank you. I hope that the last discussion was beneficial, and we hope that the second one is as well. So without further ado, we'll, we'll get right into it and get this ball rolling. All right, so the first thing we want to talk about today is the adrenal gland, and this is going to be important as we think about steroids and their usage during the surgical procedure. To begin, let's start with the overall anatomy. Your adrenal cortex is the outermost part of the gland, and this has three different layers. So you have the zona glomerulosa. This is the outermost layer, and this is where you get your mineral corticosteroids. So that'd be like aldosterone. Next, you have the zona fasciculata, and that secretes the glucocorticoid hormone. So that's going to be your cortisol. And then the last one is the zona reticularis, and that's the innermost layer, and that makes your sex hormones. So moving forward, the glucocorticoid hormone production is regulated by your ACTH from your pituitary, specifically your anterior pituitary. Your mineral corticoids are going to be regulated by the renin system, which makes sense. If you remember, the mineral corticoids is things like aldosterone, and we understand that's one of the main components of the renin system. So that makes sense. So we just talked about the mineral corticoids being regulated by the renin system. Next, the glucocorticoids, that's going to be regulated by your hypothalamus, and that's going to cause your anterior pituitary to release your ACTH, which is going to stimulate the cortisol production at the adrenal cortex. This has a negative feedback loop. So this is when you hear about the HPA axis, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. When you have increased levels of cortisol, that is going to shut off this axis. Why this is important is because what is going to drive this axis is going to be things like stress. Specifically, when we talk about surgical stress, this should cause a release of cortisol you have complications with this system, then you're not going to get that cortisol release. And we'll talk about why that's important here in a minute. Your glucocorticoids, so your cortisol is going to have effects all over your body. You're going to have an increase in catecholamine release. It's going to stimulate gluconeogenesis, which is going to cause increased blood sugar levels. It's going to help break down protein and it's going to inhibit calcium absorption from the intestines and also will suppress your immune system. So we think about all the effects of stress on the body of having negative implications for your body systems. And this is really related to the cortisol that is being released and the effects that cortisol is having on these different body systems. Specifically, when we talk about the mineral corticoids, this is mainly addressed at the renal system. So while the glucocorticoid has effects systemically, the mineral corticoid is going to be mainly at the renal tubule. So again, this is aldosterone. This is going to have effects at the absorption of water, and this is going to be mainly driven by your renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So we want to branch into specifically your disease processes with the mineral corticoids versus your glucocorticoids. So first let's talk about your mineral corticoid. So the biggest thing that we have here is hyperaldosterism or Kahn syndrome. And basically this is just a result of lots of mineral corticoid production. 
So as Tanner said, this is mainly your aldosterone. So you're going to have high levels of aldosterone that are going to be acting at the kidney. This is usually caused by either hyperplasia or from the adrenocortical tissue, or you're going to have some carcinoma as well. Basically what this does, so if you remember what aldosterone does, is it acts in the kidney to reabsorb water and reabsorb sodium while excreting potassium. So if we have high levels of aldosterone, you can imagine then that you're going to be retaining lots and lots of fluid and sodium while excreting lots of potassium. So you're going to show signs of hypokalemia, and then you're also going to show signs of fluid overload. Now, this fluid overload is going to cause some hypertension, but this is not due to a activation in your sympathetic nervous system or your renin system. This is more just because you have so much of this fluid just coming back and being reabsorbed, and it really is shutting off the renin system. But because you have this tumor that's secreting more and more of this aldosterone, you're, you're just going to keep reabsorbing this fluid, even though the beginning of the renin system is shut off. How do we take care of these patients in a surgical setting? So ideally, before you start surgery, you want to get their volume status normalized and their electrolytes corrected before you take them into surgery. So this basically would be giving supplemental potassium. You want to increase their potassium. And you also want to get rid of that excess fluid level. Well, if you're going to get rid of excess fluid, the easiest way to do that is to give a diuretic. But obviously, you don't want to give any diuretic here because their potassium is low. So we're not going to want to give anything that would flesh out more potassium like Lasix. So instead, we can give spironolactone, which is an aldosterone antagonist. So that would be the diuretic of choice for somebody that has hyperaldosterism. In terms of the hypokalemia, hypokalemia is going to make it harder to reach the threshold for your nerve and muscle cells to trigger. And so your muscle cells are going to be weaker and not be stimulated as much. So just keep in mind that if you're going to give a non-depolarizing or muscular blocker, you're not going to need as much of it. It's already hard to reach that trigger to cause the stimulus and contraction. Additionally, just with your, your fluid overload, just you might need to monitor cardiac filling pressures. You might need to monitor your rhythm status due to the alterations in your potassium level. So just keep in mind here, these patients are at risk for some cardiovascular changes as well. So the next thing we want to talk about is your glucocorticoid, specifically cortisol. If you have too much, what's that going to look like? So this is where you get Cushing's disease. So if you call what cortisol does, it's going to increase your muscle breakdown. It's going to increase your blood glucose. It's going to increase your SNS response. It's going to decrease your immune system. And basically just think about what it would look like to have the stress hormone for long periods of time. And so your patient is going to have some pretty distinct features that will make this apparent. So the first thing that you'll think about is you'll have these fat pads behind the neck. These patients will have central obesity and frequently changes in their facial appearance as well. Generally called moon face will be apparent with these people with Cushing's syndrome. Some things that you want to think about with your increased blood glucose for a long period of time, this is similar to diabetes. You're going to have poor wound healing, hypertension. The other thing that you'll have is that an increase of the glucocorticoid is actually going to cause an increased release of the mineral corticoid as well. So all the things that Cole just talked about, you're going to have that just to a lesser degree. So you're going to have some fluid retention, hypokalemia, and alkalosis as well. And one of the big coexisting diseases with this or causes of this is going to be small cell lung carcinomas. I feel like that's a frequent test question. Uh, another thing that you'll frequently see this with is if you have a pancreatic tumor, 
or a pheochrysotoma can also cause an increase in ACTH production. For anesthesia concerns with these patients, you're going to want to correct their hypertension. And so make sure that you have a really good idea of what their baseline is and make sure you monitor that throughout the case. Also, they're going to have issues with their blood glucose, like we just talked about. So make sure that's monitored. And then again, their electrolytes fluid status because of those mineral corticoid actions as well. You might want to consider spironolactone, just like you talked about with the hyperaldosteronism. And also with these patients, it's going to be really important that you have them positioned correctly. So again, I feel like this is going to keep coming up, but when you're trying to align your three axes and they have that increased fat deposited on the back of their neck, then it may be difficult to get them in line. So be careful with that. Also, they could have increased incidence of OSA. So you may want to have additional protective airway measures in place as they recover in post-op as well. Awesome. And so the other thing we want to talk about here is Addison's disease. So on the flip side, Addison's disease is when you have adrenal cortical insufficiency and you're not going to be having as much of that cortisol release. Usually this is caused by an infection. So it can be a lot of times due to AIDS, TB, a fungal infection, can also be an autoimmune disorder, or a thyroid disease can actually be associated with this. And this really will affect all three layers of your cortex. So when you have this decrease in the glucocorticoids, you're also going to have a decrease in your mineral corticoids and then your sex hormones as well. And this is going to result in some hypotension, some hypoglycemia, because you're not increasing that sugar level. You're going to have hyperkalemia because now we're not producing that aldosterone. So instead of excreting the potassium in your urine, you're actually reabsorbing it. And then instead of reabsorbing your sodium and fluid level, you're actually going to be excreting that. So you're going to have volume depletion, some dehydration and some weight loss in this. So this will be the opposite effect here. And then I feel like we've kind of skipped over this idea here, but the problem can be either primary, secondary, or tertiary. And you probably have heard that before. They have primary Addison's disease or secondary Addison's disease or whatever disease we're talking about. And basically what that means is a primary disorder is a disorder with the actual gland itself. So this would be a problem with the adrenal gland itself. If the problem is secondary, it'll be back up to your pituitary gland. So the problem would be at the pituitary gland. And if it's tertiary, it would be their hypothalamus. So what Tanner was just talking about with the Cushing's disease or Cushing's syndrome, if you have too much of your glucocorticoid hormones, if it's due to a tumor at the adrenal system, it's going to be primary. If it's because you have a tumor at the anterior pituitary, which is causing too much ACTH to be released, then it's going to be secondary and et cetera. And so the thing that you have to know with all of these is that all these have negative feedback loops. So if, if the, the problem is at the primary level or the gland itself, and it's say it's releasing too much of the hormone, it's going to cause a negative feedback loop to the prior things. So it'll, it'll cause a negative feedback loop to the hypothalamus and your anterior pituitary. And so when we're looking at Addison's disease now, the reason I brought up the whole primary secondary thing was depending on if it's a primary insufficiency, meaning that the issue is going to be due to a problem at the adrenal gland itself, or if it's secondary where the problem is going to be up more at the pituitary level, that's going to alter the symptoms we're going to see. So what Tanner mentioned before, if you have too much ACTH, it's going to cause a darker pigmentation of the skin. And that's basically due to it activates your melanocytes to decrease your pigmentation. So if the problem here is primary insufficiency, 
you're not going to be producing as much of this cortisol level and you're not going to have the negative feedback to block ACTH. So you're going to be producing lots and lots and lots of amounts of ACTH to try to get this cortisol level enhanced. And that's going to cause you to have this dark pigmented skin. If the problem is secondary, meaning that it's due to a lack of ACTH, and that's why we don't have stimulation of glucocorticoids, then you're not going to see that, that hyperpigmentation. So hopefully that makes sense. Basically, with this case, then you can also have adrenal crisis, which is you, my understanding is you have an Addison patient that all of a sudden gets extremely worse due to a lot of extra stress. So they're not able to produce that glucocorticoid level. And now you just add on a lot of stress to them and their body needs that elevated amount of cortisol and they can't keep up with the demand that their body needs. And so they're going to have all this collapse. And so this is more of an emergency type picture. Um, this can go all the way to even a cardiovascular collapse. So it's the same symptoms as Addison's, but just heightened and even more. So it's important that if you're all of a sudden going to be doing a procedure with a patient in adrenal crisis, you don't give them Atomidate for your induction agent. The reason why is it inhibits your cortisol synthesis. So that's exactly what we don't want to do in this picture because we want them to have more cortisol. So on top of that, then to treat it, you're going to want to give more cortisol. So there's a couple of different medications we can give. The big one you want to give is hydrocortisone. Hydrocortisone is nice because it both increases your glutocorticoid and your mineral corticoid, which remember both of them are going to be decreased in this situation. Whereas if you give other medications such as prednisone or dexamethasone, that's more so going to just enhance your glutocorticoids, which is nice in this case, but it's not going to increase your mineral corticoids. So just keep that in mind. Awesome. So for all of these, just a brief recap, your con syndrome, you're going to be mainly concerned about your mineral corticoid, and that's going to have implications in your renal system. With Cushing syndrome versus Addison's disease, this is where you're talking mainly about your glucocorticoid. Also, we'll have some mineral corticoid effects as well, but mainly glucocorticoid. And this is going to be your body's stress response to surgical stimulation. And so it's just important that you have a good idea of what side of the spectrum your patient is on and then what kind of support you need to give them so that they have an appropriate response to the surgical stimulation. The next thing we're going to talk about is the adrenal medulla. This is going to be your catecholamines and your chromaffin cells is what's going to release your catecholamines. So this is mainly epinephrine, 80% epinephrine, and then 20% norepinephrine, which is then converted to epi. These are the things that, as we've talked about in our ANS discussions, will bind your alpha and beta receptors. And so you can start to think here, if we have issues with the adrenal medulla, then we're going to have some issues with our sympathetic response. So the first thing we can talk about is your pheochromocytoma. This is a tumor in the adrenal medulla that is going to secrete inappropriate catecholamines. So it's going to secrete too much catecholamines. This makes sense that you would see hypertension, tachycardia, anxiety, sweating, headache. These are all your fight or flight responses. So if you have too much of this norepi, epi, this is going to be the picture that you'll see. You'll also see hyperglycemia because it's going to inhibit insulin. And again, just think of your fight or flight picture. What does it look like when your sympathetic system is activated? And these are all going to be the symptoms that you're going to see with the pheochromocytoma. The treatment of this is going to remove the tumor. This can be pretty tricky because you can have a massive shift in the amount of catecholamines that are in the body from when you are leading 
right up to resection to then post resection. And so this can be a very tricky surgery. With that in mind, something that you're going to want to do is just make sure you have a really good grip on blood pressure and their volume status. So this is where you're going to want to do an alpha blockade before this surgery. Ideally, you want to do an alpha blockade up to two weeks before to stabilize their blood pressure before the surgery. Usually they use phenoxybenzamine for this alpha block. When you are doing your surgery, you may need to additionally give them a beta blocker. And again, it's important to know though that they are alpha they need to be alpha blocked before they are beta blocked. You can also give a calcium channel blocker as well, but you don't want to be giving anything that's going to stimulate more catecholamine release. So while you're going through your surgery, keep in mind different things that are going to cause secretion of more catecholamines. So it's going to be your intubation, which is going to be stressful, surgical incision is going to be stressful, any manipulation of the tumor is going to be uh, stressful. These are all things that can cause an increased release of the catecholamines. Again, when you resect this tumor, you're going to have drastic switch to the other side. So it's important that you're communicating with the surgeon during this time you can give them some additional fluids directly before this resection to hopefully transition to this decrease of the catecholamines smoothly. You don't want to give morphine in these procedures because that has histamine release. Histamine is going to cause tachycardia and hypotension. Again, we don't want to do anything that's going to be stimulating or causing more tachycardia. You don't want to give succinylcholine. The muscle fasciculations can actually cause the release of more of these catecholamines. And then you also just want to make sure that th these are going to be patients that you're going to be doing very quick and frequent monitoring and changes to their blood pressure and heart rate. So you're not going to give drugs that have long standing effects. You're going to be able to manipulate them in real time. So just keep that in mind that you're not going to want to just give them, you know, long acting drugs and you're just going to sit there for the rest of the case. This is something that you're going to have to be continually monitoring and changing throughout the case. Awesome. So in review of that, why is it important to give a alpha blocker before we do a beta blocker? So the reasoning why is because when we give a alpha blocker, remember alpha causes vasoconstriction, alpha one that is. And so by blocking that, we're going to cause that decrease in your systemic vascular resistance. So you're going to have decreased afterload, which is then going to put less stress on the heart. If we beta block first, remember, you're going to have lots of alpha still being stimulated. So you're going to have this vasoconstriction, but now we're going to just take out the heart's contractility and take out the heart's rate and basically just dramatically decrease your cardiac output against a still very high SVR. And so you're basically going to just wipe out their cardiovascular system because you're just decreasing the pump, but keeping the pressure that it, the pump has to fight against. So that's why you want to decrease that SVR by decreasing your alpha before you do a beta blocker. So moving on to our last section we want to talk about, I know this has been a lot, but the last one we want to talk about here is the thyroid. So again, with a normal thyroid, you're going to have this hypothalamus, pituitary, and then thyroid system here. So thyroid releasing hormone TRH is going to come from the hypothalamus and it's going to cause your anterior pituitary to release thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH, which is then going to go to the thyroid and cause the thyroid to produce T3 and T4. It's also important to note here that T4 compared to T3 is the one that's going to be needing iodine. So iodine also plays a role in this process. But basically what T3 and T4 does is they 
it kind of goes hand in hand with the growth factor in, in my mind, how I compartmentalize it, but basically it increases your metabolism, increases your growth and just heightens everything. So a lot of this does with gene transcription, protein formation, basically just think the more T3 and T4 you have, the more metabolism and the more activity and the more growth you're going to have. Whereas the decrease T3 and T4 is going to cause the opposite effect. And again, this, like everything we've talked about, has a negative feedback loop. So once you have more T3 and T4, it's going to shut off that TRH and that TSH from being stimulated from the hypothalamus and anterior pituitary. So what can go wrong with this process? A lot of things. So your hyperthyroidism is one of the big things you want to talk about, and that's obviously an excess amount of thyroid hormones, so your T3 and T4. Most commonly, this is caused by an autoimmune disease, also known as Graves' disease. It's basically where you have these TSH antibodies, which are like IgG-specific antibodies that are going to bind and stimulate the thyroid gland and just keep stimulating and keep stimulating and keep stimulating, and it continues to make more thyroid hormone, more thyroid hormone, et cetera. Even though it has so much of the thyroid hormone, it tries to do a negative feedback. Well, the problem is the signal is not coming down this hypothalamus axis. It's coming from these antibodies that look like TSH and are binding to cause more T3 and T4 to be produced. Patients can have thyroid enlargement from this, just from the overproduction. This can also be due to just a tumor itself that's causing this increased production. But basically, the thing I want you to get is you're going to be in this hypermetabolic state. So you're going to be tachycardic. You're going to be hyperthermic. You're going to constantly be needing increased oxygen consumption just because their metabolic system is heightened. They're going to be basically really anxious, really fidgety. They're probably going to be very skinny from just constantly having their metabolic system activated. Another big characteristic here is they get to have protrusion of their eyeballs. So that's one thing I, I know a lot of times we see pictures of these patients when we're reading textbooks and they have their eyeballs like popping out of their sockets. That's a big characteristic of hyperthyroidism. It's like Joey from Friends with his reaction every time. <laughs> I like Check that, that man for Graves', Graves disease. <laughs> so you can either treat this with surgery or you can give some antithyroid medications as well. And in terms of trying to stop the thyroid from producing these hormones, you can do radioactive iodine or you can do thyroidectomy as well. So if you're going to do a thyroidectomy and we're going to be going into surgery for this, what are we going to do differently? Well, just know that if they have this enlargement of the thyroid gland, it can cause some tracheal deviation. And you might actually have some tracheal malaysia that develops, which weakens the thyroid cartilage. And you might have some compression on the trachea. It's just going to obviously be a bad mix for your anesthesia considerations in terms of keeping an adequate airway. You also want to monitor your recurrent laryngeal nerve. So if you remember from our talk, we went through the uh, innervation anatomy of the airway. Basically, if we're going to be doing surgery right in this area, we don't want to accidentally cause damage or injury to this nerve. So we want to have a monitoring system for this. If you damage one side, you're probably going to have some hoarseness afterwards. If you damage both RLNs, then you're probably going to have some paralysis. So that's obviously something that you don't want to have happen when you extubate the patient. So monitor the RLN for injury during the case. You can, like we talked about earlier, you could accidentally remove the parathyroid and cause some hypoparathyroidism. And basically during this surgery, because they're already so heightened to begin with, don't overstimulate their SNS and cause more tachycardia, more hypertension. Just be mindful of what drugs you're going to give for that reason. And then lastly, I've seen that myasthenia gravis can be associated with the hyperthyroid patient. So if you remember all the way back from our talk about the neuromuscular junction, this is going to be where you reduce the amount of non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers that you want to give because they're going to be having blockage of those nicotinic receptors. So be mindful of the neuromuscular blocker that you're going to give. 
And then lastly, this can even jump into a thyroid storm picture, which is the same symptoms, but heightened again, where you just have a rapid release of T3 and T4. And it's going to be very marketed tachycardia, hypertension, arrhythmias. Their metabolism is going to be so activated that you might have some lactic acid just because your body can't keep up with it. And again, you basically want to treat all their symptoms, do antithyroid meds, manage their symptoms. They're probably going to have a fever. Tylenol is a good choice here because it also helps with the fever, but it also displaces T3 and T4 from the carrier proteins, so it prevents it from doing its job. So that would be a good medication to give in this situation. On the other side of this, let's talk about the hypothyroid. So like you just talked about, hyperthyroid is a increased metabolic state. Hypothyroid is going to be a decreased metabolic state. So this can also be caused by autoimmune dysfunctions. And you're going to see instead of hyperthermic and all those increased heart rate, those types of things, you're going to see the opposite. So you see hypothermic, dry, brittle skin, brittle hair, slow GI function. You can see some bradycardia. You can also see mixed edema with these patients, which can actually lead to emergency. You are going to have decreased exercise tolerance. You're going to have maybe actually slightly increased blood pressure because of chronic vasoconstriction. So these patients, again, with bradycardia and the uh, potentially heart failure, you're going to see compensation with vasoconstriction. And so they may actually have an increased blood pressure. You're going to treat with the all-important levothyroxine. I feel like every patient and their mother gets levothyroxine. But again, this is why, because this is going to be treatment for the hypothyroid. For your anesthesia considerations, because of your decreased metabolism, you want to be careful with your dosing of drugs because they may not be able to clear these quite as quickly. And then also they may have a goiter with these patients. And so when you're talking about their airway and you're doing their initial assessment and you're evaluating all of that, make sure to get a really good understanding of what their neck looks like. This may lead to a difficult intubation. And so just make sure that you have that assessed and you have a plan in place before you go to surgery. Another thing to think about with these patients is if this hypothyroidism happens when they are young or as an infant and is not corrected, this can lead to cretinism or mental delays. And so these can be lifelong complications that are associated with hypothyroidism. And so it's just important that those are assessed and treated early. Great. So I know that was long and drawn out, but... It's very important for us to understand how these different endocrine systems work and how we need to adjust our anesthesia care to adequately provide the right treatment to these patients and the right care to these patients. 